Hi ladies, welcome to Women in the Word. So great to see so many of you here today. I'm Shelley Davis. I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I am glad to be here. We're gonna continue to look at Paul's great letter to his young friend Timothy this morning. We've got some interesting things to talk about and think about together to be united on as women in the church. Now, those of you that know me have heard me talk about my incredible mother-in-law over the years. She went to be with Jesus at the age of 85 several years ago. She was amazing. I think in the 50 years that I knew her, she never said one critical thing to me as a daughter-in-law. And that is amazing because there was much she could have said to me. She was kind and she was loving. But she was also a woman who always had her priorities straight. She put Jesus first in every situation and then came her husband and her kids and her grandkids. She was also a woman who was not afraid to voice her priorities, particularly when it came to her family. We teased her about it often because she did it by saying to us, now the main thing, and she kind of had this Oklahoma twang to it, now the main thing. And so we were, uh, if we were getting together for a family dinner and then we all began to pack up and leave with our kids, she would stop everyone and said, now the main thing is that everyone drive home safe. And she was right, of course. What would be more important than that we all get home safe? If she would excuse me, if she was with me and she saw that I was on my last nerve with my three little boys, she would kind of take my face in her hands and say, now the main thing is that you get some rest because I think she, I think she was afraid I was going to do her grandchildren in if I didn't get some rest. But she was a gal that was always spot on in her wise and mature ways of telling us what the main thing was. She was really a master at pointing it out in all situations. As we continue with Paul this morning, he's also spot on with his young friend, Timothy. Uh, he has some main thing moments with Timothy as it concerns the local church. Deb told us in week one that he's talking with Timothy about the local church, about the body of Christ, just like each and every one of us attends every week. Paul knows that the conduct of those that are in the local church is crucial. It's crucial, and there are going to be certain priorities that healthy churches have as their hallmark, that they put up on their list of these are priorities for us as a healthy church. So we're gonna spend some time this morning looking at Paul's main things uh, and the priorities of a healthy church. So I hope you've turned in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter two. We are going to read verses one and two together. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, Paul doesn't use my mother-in-law's words, a main thing here, but he does start out by telling us first of all, so that we will stop and look and listen to what he's saying. His, ver his words here in verse one highlight for us uh, today that Paul thinks that prayer should be a priority in any 
healthy church. When he says, first of all, I urge that all types of prayer be made for all types of people, he's not saying that anytime we walk in the doors of the church before we do anything else, we need to drop to our knees and pray right then. But what he is saying in his main thing moment here with Timothy is that prayer needs to be a significant and primary ministry of every local church. Because ladies, as a church, our relationship that goes vertically with God has got to be first in the, as a priority in the church. We have to do this as a whole church body before we can do anything out here. Isn't that true? Before we worry about discipleship, before we worry about feeding the poor and hungry, the first thing we need to do is worry about this relationship with the Lord our God. It needs to be first, not last, on every healthy church list. Now, Paul lists all types of prayers here. He lists supplication, intercession, thanksgiving. So we can know that what he's talking about here is having all sorts of conversations with our God as a church body. Our conversations with God as a church body need to be about praise, they need to be about thanksgiving. They need to be about supplication, taking people's prayers um, into the throne room of God himself. It's also prayers for all kinds of people. As a local church, we're not just praying for a few leaders in the church or a few um, people that stand out in the body because they're needy. The local church has to pray for our friends and for our enemies. The local church has to pray for those who are already saved and for the unsaved. The local church has to pray for the needy, but they also have to pray for those who are blessed in our congregations as well. Another thing that Paul highlights here when it concerns praying is the mission of praying for our local government leaders, for all our government leaders actually from the top down. He starts with kings, but he includes all of those who are in authority. Now I hope some of you were able to be here yesterday at noon right here in the sanctuary because that's exactly what we did as a local church. We prayed for the upcoming election. We prayed for the future of our country and the leaders that are going to lead it. Yesterday, right here, was an example, a perfect example, actually, of what Paul was talking about when he talks about the local church praying for the leaders in our country. The local church, our church right here, has a high calling to prayer. That's Paul's point to engaging God in every aspect of our lives, even in our earthly governments. Our prayers as a local church absolutely engage God in our government. Do you become discouraged a little bit about what's going on in the world? Um, that is your call to prayer because when we engage God in prayer about the world around us, he answers, he answers, we pray we trust he answers. Look at First Chronicles 5 on your verse sheet there. It says, they cried out to him during battle. During battle, he answered their prayers because they trusted in him. As a local church, we pray, we trust, God answers. The scriptures support that over and over again. Now, when Pastor Ted talked a few weeks ago in his sermon, um, 
about the responsibility that we have as believers in our country, he pointed out that we all have a responsibility as citizens to not sit out this election because we're confused or upset or frustrated. We must vote was his message. But Paul tells us as a church, we must also pray. We must also pray. We have responsibilities as citizens of our country to vote. We have responsibilities as citizens of heaven to pray. And Paul puts that firmly right here on the local church. Theologian Warren Wiersbe said this, it's often said that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. God's will done on earth. You know, and that is true when it comes to our world leaders. But another point that Paul is making here as he talks about praying in all situations is that we must get God's will done in the lives of those who are lost the lives of those who need salvation. Let's read verses three through seven together. This is good, and he means, uh, he's talking about it's good that we pray for all things and all people, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in proof. You know, Paul gives us a peek at God's heart right here. God's heart really is that all men would be saved. And because of that, he calls us all to pray for the salvation of all men. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9 on your verse sheet. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, some of you may be, may be thinking this morning, particularly if you have um, a theological background and you, those words of uh, election and predestination come to mind. But Paul is not teaching wrong theology here to Timothy in verse four when he says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. What you need to take away from these verses is it is God's heart. It is God's heart and his desire that everyone would come to repentance. Um, but our God, who knows election and redemption issues better than we do, our God also knows that everyone will not come to the gift, uh, to accept the gift of salvation but that does not change God's heart. He still breaks for those who don't accept that free gift of salvation. And our job is not to try to put the mystery of those two together in a way that our earthly minds can understand it. What's our job? Our job is simply to accept the fact that God's heart does break for the lost. And so we are going to pray for the lost. And then we're going to let 
God worry about the mystery of election and predestination, aren't we? Last week, Lynn was here. She gave a great lecture out of chapter one, and it was about the false teaching that was going around the church in Ephesus. And part of the false teaching that was being visited on that church in Ephesus was that salvation was only for the Jews. Salvation was only for the Jews. Now, Paul um, dispels that truth here when he points out that, hey, I'm called as the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, but he also dispels that misconception and false truth with the three truths that may have been part of an early creed of the church that they may have recited every single time they came together. I hope they did. And those three truths that he proclaims here and beginning in verse five is that there's only one God. There's only one God. He also says that there's only one way to that God, and that is through our Lord Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh. And the third thing he tells those in the church at Ephesus that have been listening to that false teaching that only the Jews are to be saved is that Jesus' death on the cross ransomed all of us from sin. And of course, the scriptures, the whole of the scriptures bear this out. Look at John 14, 6 with me. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Matthew 20, 28 says, even as the son of man came to be served and not to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now these words, this creed of the early church were an incredible testimony of God's desire, um, of course, to save all men. But they're also the recognition um, that refutes that false truth that only the Jews are going to come to salvation. Um, because they recognize that it is our Lord Jesus who opens the door to um, heaven. It is our Lord Jesus who is the, media, the mediator, the one who paid the ransom, the one who had the key that unlocked the door that blocked all of us uh, from God until we accept our Lord Jesus. That truth that our Lord Jesus is the mediator who paid the ransom and opened the door to heaven for all of us is important in the message of salvation, for sure. But it's also important right here when Paul talks about us praying for the lost as a local church. Because what do we know as a local church is that the door to heaven is open, isn't it? Um, if Before we were saved, before we came together as a body of believers, it was our sin that separated us from a holy God. Paul proclaims right here that our Lord Jesus has paid that ransom and the door is no longer shut. So as a local church, we need to walk through that open door and go into the th throne room and approach God with our petitions day in and day out. Because of that mediator that paid the ransom and opened the door, we as a local church have access to the throne room anytime any place, anywhere. A church who makes prayer a priority, a church who walks through that open door that our mediator, our Lord Jesus, opened for us can change lives as people across the world come to salvation because we have prayed that prayer in the throne room directly to God himself and we can as a local church change the world because we have petitioned God directly um, 
through the door of heaven, right into the throne room for the leaders of our government. Prayer should be a powerful priority of the local church as they remember our Lord Jesus has opened the door to the throne room and we can enter it anytime. Paul has some other priorities for the church, so let's keep reading. Look at verse eight for me. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, Paul's still talking about prayer here, but he changes his focus a little bit um, from the prayer itself to the people that are doing the praying, and that is the men of the local church. And Paul describes the men of the local church praying with hands uplifted. And that simply was a common prayer posture in the Old Testament. We see it in the first century church as well. If you look at artwork from the first century church, you see men praying with uplifted hands. It's not the uplifted hands that's important here. What's important is the understanding that the truth that Paul is telling the church is that the men of the church need to be leaders in the area of prayer. The men in all of our churches, um, in healthy churches, they need to be prayer warriors and prayer leaders. Now, everyone in the church is called to pray. We certainly, as women, are called to pray. Our youth and our children are taught how to pray um, as they are discipled and grown up in the church. But Paul knows that it's a leadership role that the men of the church in Ephesus and the men of the churches throughout the centuries have got to take on. They have to take it seriously. They can't, as busy men with a lot of responsibilities in their life, put prayer aside as, oh, that's a role for the retired people of the church. That's a role that people take on that don't have jobs and responsibilities and families. Prayer is an area that Paul knows men must step into. If a church is going to be healthy, it's also a role that men need to step into carefully, mindful of their behavior and their relationships. Paul's description of lifting up holy hands here, the word we need to look at there is not the uplifted hands, but the word holy. Because that word holy means a clean heart. It means undefiled. It means devout. So those that are leaders in prayer, the men that take the responsibility in the church to be prayer warriors, need to have those kinds of hearts. Clean, undefiled, committed. Now the unsound doctrine that we've been talking about in the church in Ephesus that was plaguing the church had undoubtedly caused some quarrels and divisions in the church. There were those that uh, promoted unsound doctrine and there were those that opposed unsound doctrine, thank goodness. Um, in light of those quarrels and divisions that had probably been created by the false doctrines that were circulating in the church, Paul calls on the men of the church to examine and cleanse their whole hearts. If you've been fighting and quarreling with other men in the church, you need to um, sit down before God and cleanse your own heart before you step up to lead in prayer. Anger, strife, and discord should never be the reputation of men who are taking a knee and leading worship and prayer in the church. 
when Pastor Ted was here a couple of weeks ago with that great sermon on um, how to choose uh, a leader in our country, one of the things that he mentioned was that we should look at the relationships that our leaders have with their families and in the workplace. And that is great wisdom for us as a church as well. Anger and broken relationships are a red flag They're a red flag in people's lives. It's a red flag waved by a heart that needs some serious work. Healthy, holy, spiritual leaders in the church are always characterized by their sound relationships in every area of their life. In their workplace, they should be men that are respected and revered in the workplace. They should be men that have a reputation of having good relationships in their families. And certainly, they should be men that have the reputation of having sound relationships in their church body. Sound relationships in our leaders should be a priority in any healthy church. Okay, so now we get to the fun stuff. We're gonna talk about priorities for women. So everybody's gonna take a big, deep breath here and just uh, relax. Paul does have some priorities for women in the church. I wanna give you a background for what Paul is speaking into here before we talk about these particular verses here in 1 Timothy. You know, it was Deb that told us a few weeks ago that Ephesus, uh, where this church is located, is a pretty large cosmopolitan city. So the women of Ephesus, the women of the church, have been exposed to a cosmopolitan worldly environment. Um, This large cosmopolitan city actually is filled with pagan temples where they worship Artemis and Diana. And it was a common practice in the pagan temples to have temple prostitutes. It's just a normal, regular part of their worship. Um, These are also women in the church in Ephesus, particularly if they come out of a Jewish background, that have had few freedoms in their worship experience uh, before becoming part of the New Testament church. If their background is Jewish, they've had restricted participation in temple worship. There was um, something in the temple called the Court of Women, where the women sat, and they were allowed to go no further in the temple than that of women. They had to peek over a wall to the inner temple in order to visualize or see any of the worship experiences. Um, The Jewish women had little respect or responsibility outside the home. In the home, they ruled, but when they stepped outside of the home, there was little um, respect that they were given by the men in their lives. In fact, ancient rabbinic literature is really Uh, quite disparaging when it comes to women. If you read um, that at all, it, it has some pretty negative comments to say about women. Now, Paul is a former zealous rabbi who himself, as a rabbi, would have had some good restrictions on who he could talk to. He couldn't approach a woman um, out on the streets. He couldn't uh, talk with uh, strange women. It was pretty interesting life for the Jewish women. But that's not who Paul is now. Paul is a changed man. He is no longer a zealous rabbi. His heart has had um, complete circumcision. It is changed. And since his conversion, Paul has worked um, diligently and affectionately side by side 
with women in the New Testament church. I hope if you did your homework, you read um, Romans chapter 16 where Paul really um, is, is so um, gracious to the women that he has worked side by side with. You can tell that he has great affection for them, for their commitment. Uh, I think there were actually nine different women that he greets at the end of his letter to Romans that have been involved with him in ministry. So that's our context. We have a worldly cosmopolitan city that these women are um, living in. There are also women who have, up until now have had few freedoms in their life and then they stepped into the church where our Lord Jesus Christ has elevated women to a status they've probably never experienced in all of history, and we have Paul, who's an apostle whose heart has changed when it comes to the women he's worked tirelessly with side by side in the New Testament church. So in light of all that, let's read verses nine and 10 together. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good, and with good works. Now, I've been involved with the women's ministry here at Christ Chapel for at least a couple of decades, maybe more. And during that time, I've had countless conversations with men and women over the way women in the church dress, over the way women dress. Everyone, believe me, everyone has their own opinion um, about our wardrobes, what should be in each one of our um, closets. Uh, but guess what? Paul has beat all of us to it. None of us have to be worried about um, making that list for our closets because Paul has beat all of us to it. Paul loves the church. I believe with all my heart that Paul loves the women of the church. And you know, Paul is that bold guy. I mean, he didn't give up when he was persecuting Christians and he is bold enough and has enough courage now to address this with the young pastor, Timothy. I'm, I'm thinking Timothy was probably thinking, oh dear, now I've got to share this with the women of the church. But Paul is not really addressing what we think he's addressing here. In verse 9, he talks about women with respectable appearance, apparel, not braided hair, not gold, not pearls, not expensive, costly outfits. And it starts out looking like that's Paul's version of what not to wear for the church. But I don't want us this morning to be distracted from what Paul's true point here when it comes to women in the church. In verse nine, he modifies that phrase, respectable apparel, with the qualities of modesty and self-control. And in verse 10, he adds that women should be seen wearing their changed hearts and their faithful service. That's what he means when he says they should adorn themselves with godliness and good works. Those things might be hard to put on unless you realize he's talking about our hearts here. He's talking about our hearts. The modesty that Paul is calling all of us to here is not a list of do's and don'ts when it comes to our wardrobes. What he's calling women here to do is to let our outward appearance reflect our inward character because now we are followers of our Lord Jesus Christ and we represent our Lord Jesus wherever we go. You know, the temple prostitutes who sold their bodies as part of temple worship there in Ephesus 
guess how they dressed? Their um, dress contained braided hair, pearls, gold jewelry, and expensive clothing. Paul's warning um, is that our outward appearance can signal misplaced values. It's pretty sad when Paul has to say to the women of the church, I can't tell the difference between you and the women that are down the street at the pagan temple as temple prostitutes. You know, women, we love to draw attention to ourselves. We love to walk in a room and have someone come over to us and say, love your shoes, love that, um, you know, love the way you're dressed. Uh, But we have to be careful that we draw attention to our appearance because what it does is sometimes signal that our values are not what they should be. Sometimes our outward appearance is a dead giveaway that we're more concerned about ourselves than we are of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes our outward appearance signals that our true value is money. Look how expensive my shoes are. Look how expensive uh, my outfit is. Sometimes it signals sexual attractiveness, that you wanna make sure every man in the room has his eye on you. Paul is warning the women of Ephesus that their outward appearance signals misplaced values in their lives. They're not valuing following our Lord Jesus Christ. They're valuing the same thing the prostitutes up the street are selling. He's also warning the women about bringing the pagan culture into the church through their clothing choices, you know, and we don't have things that we designate uh, pagan worship centers here. Um, in Fort Worth, Texas, but we do have an opportunity to bring that pagan culture into the church by the way we dress, and Paul is warning us against that. What he's also saying to us is that we cannot, as women of the church, let the freedom that we have in Christ, and we have the most incredible freedom that women have ever had, we cannot let our freedom or the worldly culture that surrounds us lead us astray even in something as simple and small as the way that we dress. Instead, we've got to let our godly characters shine through, and we need to be blessing the church, blessing the men around us, blessing the other women around us with our modest and appropriate clothing choices. Now the word modest Paul uses in the context here actually means decent and orderly. And um, it is a temptation to pass out this morning a list of what I think or the leaders of the church think are decent and orderly. I could give all of us a legalistic um, list of clothing today that we could go home and begin to rip things out of our closets, you know, things that, like that skirt that, uh, is it too short or is it not too short or those jeans, they used to fit, but whoa, now they're way too tight. And the spandex leggings that are just a phenomena in our culture, um, I think spandex leggings fit tighter than skin, don't you? I mean, they're things that spandex leggings show on your body that nobody else in the world really needs to see, ladies. Um, And I'm including myself in that as well. So we could take this list and we could go home and we could feel really good about our legalism. You know, the other thing we could do with that list, we could use it to judge the women around us. 
we could take that list and we could think, oh my, well, she hasn't cleaned out her closet yet. Um, yeah, we could, we could do all sorts of things with a legalistic list I could give you today. But the list that Paul is trying to give each and every one of us is actually found in 1 Peter 3 on your verse sheet. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And Paul's list continues with Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You know, if Paul were here today, he would discover that the women of the church still struggle with being influenced by the worldly culture around us when it comes to our wardrobe. We still struggle with bringing the pagan culture into the church because of the freedom that we have in Christ. Paul's heart for women is not that we would have a legalistic list. His heart is that um, nothing would outshine or overshadow our godly character, not our choice of clothing or our desire to gain attention through our appearance. You know, Paul really gets it, that true beauty puts God first before fashion and culture. As a healthy church, we need to be women who we make it a priority to dress modestly um, and display our inner beauty. Each of us, each of us as women in the church has to be aware of two things in this area. We have to be aware of extending grace to those around us who are less mature, whose hearts have not quite reached the level that perhaps ours has. And then we need to be concerned about coming along beside those women um, who still have ways to go when it comes to Paul's list in Colossians and, and, um, what, and 1 Peter and help their hearts mature so that they can participate in a church, a healthy church. Okay, so let's read on here just a minute. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, let me start out by saying women are permitted to teach. Obviously, I've been preparing for weeks to be up here to teach at uh, Women in the Word. Lynn Kitchens was here last week. I think Amy Foster will be here next week. We have a team of six great women Bible teachers here at Christ Chapel. In fact, it's Paul who actually gave women the authority to teach. Look at Titus 2 on your verse sheet. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husband, that the word of God might not be reviled. Those are Paul's own words. We also know that young Timothy that he's talking to right here in this letter, young Timothy was taught the scriptures at home by his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And in Acts 18, that I think you looked at in your homework, we see Priscilla 
coming alongside Apollos with her husband Aquila and teaching the scriptures to Apollos. Women do teach. But the, the issue that Paul is really addressing here has to do with recognizing and respecting spiritual authority in the church. It's the context in which women teach that has to do with spiritual authority in the church. I've already said that the women in Ephesus were experiencing new freedoms in the church that they had never experienced before. They'd also been fallen under false teaching that along with all the other things the false teachers were suggesting, they were suggesting that now that Jesus had come and given them all this freedom, there were no longer any role distinctions between men and women. Men and women were equal, um, not only in their value, but equal in their roles in the church. You know, it's interesting that our culture today is also preaching gender um, no division in gender anymore, isn't it? And causing struggles throughout our world. So having been made bold by their new freedoms in Christ and the goading of the false teachers, what the situation that Paul is addressing here with the women of the church is that they're testing the limits of spiritual authority in the church. Now, of course, our God is the ultimate authority in all of our lives, and it's through his word that he not only explains spiritual authority, but he um, uh, communicates and delegates spiritual authority through the word of God here. In fact, when we built this church, there is a Bible right here uh, built under into the foundation right here. Uh, as I stand in the pulpit because this church stands on the spiritual authority of the word of God and those that the word of God delegate it to. And the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, what we see is that the word of God delegates spiritual authority at the top level of the church to pastors and elders. We're gonna talk more about the role, the office of pastor uh, elder and the men it's delegated to in the next couple of weeks and why God has chosen that. But these are the challenges that the women presented in the church um, when it concerns spiritual authority. And right here, when these challenges are presented, what we have in these verses, it's Paul stepping in to restore order. And his first instruction in verse 11 is for the women of the church to be teachable. That's what he means when he says they're to be learners who submit to authority. That's kind of the definition of being teachable in my mind. You know, over the years of parenting, having grown kids and grandkids and being involved in their lives and the lives of women in this church, one observation I've made is the most successful people are always teachable. They're always teachable. And what it means to be teachable is that you are willing to learn from others. You are willing to submit to authority. You are willing to correct your mistakes when those in authority around you point them out. Years ago, one of my boys, um, as only college boys can do, uh, broke a rule and made a misstep in his college career. That could have been kind of costly in his future. And he remembers that when he called his dad and I that 
um, great night to share with us uh, about this misstep that he had made. What he remembers is, is that his dad said to him, this is what I want from you. I want you to walk through this situation with the authority around you and be teachable. Be teachable. I think we said a lot of other things that night, but that's what he remembers is be teachable. Now, I'm happy to say that was years and years ago. He's a grown man with a family of his own, and he still remembers that moment because he shared with me recently that the people that he has authority over, and he's in a position where he has a lot of authority, he said, I say that to them all the time. Be teachable, and you're going to be successful. That's Paul's lesson here to the women before he starts in on some of the other issues. And in, um, after giving that wisdom in verse 11, Paul specifically addresses the issue of teaching. I do not permit women to teach um, or to have authority over men in the church. Now, it would seem that that teaching prohibition bumps directly up against what we saw Paul say in Titus, um, that women are not to teach, because women do teach. And we understand this verse. Uh, we get clarity on what Paul intends concerning women teaching when we recognize that he connects that women teaching to spiritual authority in the church. Um, what we can understand here from Paul is that women do teach, but women do not teach in the local church in a setting where they will be teaching doctrinal truth from the scriptures, which conveys spiritual authority over men. In the church, in the church setting, Paul gives women the green light to teach all day, every day with incredible spiritual authority to the women of the church. And let me tell you, that is a huge and big job. He also seems to open the door here for women to teach from the scriptures in a setting where men are present if they do so under the spiritual authority of the elders and pastor of the church and at the direction of the elder and pastor overseer of the church. Um, years ago, we had an incredible Bible teacher here by the name of Martha James, and Martha will be 90 in February, so she has retired from teaching women in the Word like she used to for so many years, and she shared with me an experience that she had in the early days of her Bible teaching career at her church in North Carolina. She used to attend this, she said, was a great Sunday school class that was taught and administered by an elder in the church. And this elder knew that uh, Martha was an incredible Bible teacher. And so when he was ill or had to be out of town, he would designate Martha to teach his Sunday school class. Now she did it at his invitation, under his direction, and under his spiritual authority as an elder at the church. The men who were sitting in the room were not under Martha's spiritual authority, even though she was sharing with them truth from the scriptures, because the male elder that held the responsibility for the class was responsible for what was taught in the class. He was using her, his spiritual authority to protect Martha as she shared the scriptures with a group of men and women. Now, at the end of verse 12, Paul uses the word 
quiet. He says, um, she is to remain quiet, which, whoa, can you imagine saying that to a group of women in the church? Okay, everybody hush. But what we learn about this Greek word gives us great insight into what Paul is trying to say here because this word quiet or silent, it may be in your translation, doesn't mean duct tape over our mouths. What it means in the original language is unruly, not unruly, or settled down. So Paul's addressing here with these admonishments about teaching and having spiritual authority in the church, he's addressing those unruly women who are creating turmoil and disorder in the church, who are usurping spiritual authority because now they have freedom in Christ and they are running over the leaders of the church and taking their spiritual authority um, and that is the issue that Paul is addressing here with women. He's not putting them down. He's not taking away responsibilities. He's trying to restore order and give women the opportunity to be under the spiritual authority of those who God has given it to. Okay, so let's finish up here with verse 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, as Paul tries to explain the differences of the roles between men and women in the church, what he does is reach all the way back to Genesis and God's original design for men and women. And if you were here with our Genesis study um, several years ago, you remember that when we were in chapters one and two of Genesis, we know these things about our God. Um, we were about women. We were created equally in the image of God as men were. We have equal value and importance in God's kingdom. But men and women, even though they're created differently, are given different roles, even in their importance and their value to God. You looked at that in Genesis 2, 18 in your verse sheet. So the created order that Paul is citing here implies... Um, that women were not created to rule over men, not in the marriage relationship and not in the church, but women were created to complement that relationship that they have with men, whether it's in marriage or in the church um, as leaders. Paul connects God's original order and design for men and women to the leadership of the church as well, Men and women are created equal, but we have different roles, even in the church. Now, in verse 14, Paul does something interesting. He references Eve's deception and rebellion, which brings sin into the world. Let me tell you what these difficult verses here about Eve are not saying. They are not saying because Eve was deceived, guess what? She's not trustworthy. She can never be in leadership anywhere, anytime. And anyone that uses that argument right here to say women cannot be in leadership in any position in a church are not really remembering the rest of the story, are they? because I don't think Adam was actually um, seen in a very good light here either. So if Eve's disqualified for her deception, that would also disqualify Adam and all men by his disobedience. Let me tell you what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying to the women of Ephesus and to us as he references what happened in the garden with Eve is that bad things happen 
when we usurp leadership roles that are not ours. Bad things happen when men abdicate their leadership roles, whether it's in a garden or in a family or in a church. What Paul has seen in the church in Ephesus is an inkling of what happened in the garden, Eve's overreach. Eve's overreach and rebellion in the garden Paul's seen an inkling of that in the women of the church of Ephesus, and he wants to bring order back into the leadership of the church. His hope and desire here in these difficult verses of women is not to put women in their places, and it's not to incite men to abuse their power um, and leadership. His hope is that the women of Ephesus would be teachable, godly women who recognize the wisdom of placing themselves under the spiritual authority of those who God himself has ordained. Okay, we have one final verse and we're gonna be done. Um, the chapter closes. Uh, if you read any commentary, let me tell you the first thing it says about verse 15. This is the most difficult verse in the entire scriptures. And I was like, thank you, Paul, for adding this in right here at the end. It says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There were a lot of um, explanations about this verse. I'm gonna share with you real quickly just the two that are the most plausible here in this context, I believe. Um, the first one is, this could be a reference to the truth that uh, Mary bore our Lord Jesus. And so through the birth of our Lord Jesus, we as women receive salvation. That could be one explanation for this. But honestly, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that Paul would all of a sudden translate, trans, um, change to uh, Mary bearing Jesus right here. So let me tell you what the second explanation is. The second possible meaning comes to Paul's reference that he's just used of his God's original design for men and women to complement each other through their distinctly different roles. This verse could be a reference, could be a reference to the truth that women are ultimately more fulfilled when they stop seeking the roles they haven't been designed for, when they stop seeking the roles that have specifically been given to men, whether it's in the church or in the family. And they just trust in God's design for them as women. And that um, uh, great favor that God has on women includes bearing children, doesn't it? It is a blessing on our gender that men will never experience. They'll never have the opportunity to take from us. Now, I wanna close um, all these thoughts here uh, by putting this heart this thought into our heart as women. Healthy churches have as a priority recognizing and respecting God's ordained spiritual authority. You know, when Eve was in the garden, she allowed the serpent to change her focus from this incredible paradise that she had been placed in to the one tree that God had put a fence around. One tree in all of paradise. And she became obsessed with the one thing that God had not given to her. And all she had to do, all she had to do, instead of obsessing over the one thing that God had put aside from her, 
was turn around and look at paradise. Turn around and look at paradise and stop obsessing over the one thing that has not been given to her. As women in the church, we have the opportunity to bless any church we are part of by focusing on the responsibility and the gifts that God has given us as women in the church rather than focusing on what he's asked the men to do. Pray with me. Father, you are great and gracious. I thank you for just the gift of being a woman, the gift of sharing the scriptures with all of these women. And Lord, I pray we would be women that honor you by um, really taking hold of the responsibilities you've given us as women of the church, that we would not obsess over the things that you have placed squarely on the shoulders of men, but rather we would take to heart um, the things you've placed on our shoulders. I thank you for this. Women, I ask that you would go with them today as they leave here, that you would protect them and guard them and draw them close to you. And I pray this in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.